Hello and welcome to 2020 and to this special Q&A episode. I hope that your new year brings you joy and happiness, lots of good fortune and perhaps a, you know, a new home or a brand new renovation project as well. Now, I'm going to be answering some questions that have been sent in by you, the beautiful UA community. So stay tuned because I'm going to be answering a question from Terry, who's wanting to know about biophilic design. And Felicity has a question about high-level windows and whether they should be operable or not. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host, Amelia Lee. Think of me as your secret ally. I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Now we're going to get to those questions and answers really soon, but first I want to let you know about something that I think will be super helpful to many of you. This episode is brought to you by my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. Look, with all the ideas and the inspiration and whoever you're working with or whether you're designing your home yourself, it can be super hard to design and then commit to a floor plan and have certainty and know confidently that it's going to create the home that you dream of. As an architect with 25 years of industry experience and having designed hundreds and hundreds of homes for homeowners like you, I know that there are key elements to every successful design and that there are specific characteristics that ensure a home will suit you now and always. In this free online workshop, I share tips, ideas, strategies, things to avoid, things to get right to really help you know how to get it right in your home design. And this free online workshop, it's available to watch now at a time convenient to you. So just head to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways. And that's the number five ways, W-A-Y-S. And that link will be in the resources as well. Now let's get on with the episode. So our first question is from Terry, and she's actually looking for ideas and resources to help her take a biophilic design approach to the project she's doing. Now, if you're not sure what biophilic design is, you are going to love this because biophilic design is actually an amazing approach that anyone can adopt in their new home or renovation project. In fact, any type of building to dramatically improve how it helps us feel, our health, our well-being, and, you know, to really tune into the things that make us feel great in any kind of space. So let's listen to her question. Hi, my name is Terry Mason. I'm in Oklahoma in the United States, and we are building a family and event center, and we're wanting to do it in biophilic design. So we've done a tremendous amount of research. Um, it's been quite a process, but with it being a little more unknown, obviously the resources are, are a little more scarce, and I would love to hear your input as far as what would you do to bring in more natural elements um, looking for shapes or inspiration areas or resources or just anything you could to speak to that, uh, just make it a great place. I would truly appreciate it. I absolutely loved this question because biophilic design isn't something that I've really known a lot uh, in a lot of detail, I suppose, by the name that it's called 
you know, by. So it's not something that I remember learning about at university, even though it's something that's been around for a long time. We learned about how nature informs great design and how using cues uh, from nature and creating connections with nature can help and improve the health and well-being of an occupant in any kind of building, particularly in a home. Um, but it wasn't necessarily that it had that name. And I think that, you know, the book that that about biophilia or um, biophilic design is it was written in 1984 and so a lot of this information in terms of being categorized under a particular type of design has really gained traction since then so and I'm not sure if the inquiry came because I did write a, um, a blog and I did a podcast on visiting the Amazon Spheres when I was in Seattle, which is a building that Amazon um, has built for their staff. And that's based on biophilic design. And that was a really exciting building to be in and to visit. And I did blog and podcast about that. So I was wondering whether the inquiry had come because you'd seen that. But um, yeah, I think that this is really an exciting question. And I think that uh, that this is something that can be really considered in our homes as much as any kind of building that we're occupying or thinking about creating. Uh, in our homes, this can be of true value in terms of creating a really lovely uh, environment that supports our well-being. So in terms of what biophilic design is, it's actually design that focuses on promoting a connection with nature, as I said. There's a belief that this connection actually greatly improves our well-being and the way that we occupy buildings and spaces and our homes. So, you know, as cities and suburban and urban areas have been built up, there's this case of the fact that we're disconnected from nature, separated, sheltered from nature. But biophilic design challenges this and it actually seeks to put this in direct contact and connection with nature. And it's really heavily backed by research and scientific studies as to how much it can improve our health. Now, I wrote that article and blog after or the blog and the podcast after I visited the Amazon spheres and uh, I found an article at the time that was written by the Seattle Weekly, um, uh, an author named Kelton Sears, and she wrote it in May 2016. So it was about seven months before the Amazon spheres opened. But by that stage, all the plants were being installed and established so that they could um, be in place before the building uh, was opened seven months later. And in that article, Kelton said, the Amazon spheres are the latest local manifestation of a fascinating new design approach, biophilic and biomimetic architecture. Now, by, and, and Kelton continues in the article, it's biophilia is the name of a seminal 1984 book by E.O. Wilson, a biologist with a specialty in ants. In biophilia, Wilson posits that the biophilia hypothesis, uh, which states that subconsciously humans have evolved a deep connection with and an affinity for natural systems and life forms. So biophilia literally means the love of life. How awesome is that? Now, in turn, the emerging field of biophilic design seeks to connect humanity with the nature through with nature through the built environment. This can be as dramatic as cladding the entire exterior of a building with foliage or as simple as installing a small garden in the lobby. The approach has been most popular in hospitals thanks to a scientific study that was able to quantify the medical benefits of biophilia. And you know, you may be familiar with this study. I know I've heard it a few times. It was a study where they actually had one uh, line of they had they had a group of patients, and one one group of the patients recovering from surgery, they uh, positioned them in rooms where they could see trees and gardens outside the window, and then the other 
group of patients, they were only able to see, I think, a brick wall outside of their window. And the people who could see trees and nature, they recovered more quickly and they required less pain medication than the ones that uh, could just see the brick wall. Now, there's lots of resources available. There's actually this really fantastic documentary um, that's on Vimeo. I'll pop a link in the resources. I think it costs about $14 to rent. Um, That actually interviews a lot of experts in the field of biophilic design and talks a lot about the research that supports it. And then there's also, of course, the book by E.O. Wilson, but there's lots of other things that, um, that that I know that I particularly found when I was on my hunt to be able to bring this podcast to you. There's a, uh, a group called Terrapin. They've got an incredible document that actually outlines the 14 patterns of biophilic design. And so those are really great to look at because they're a really good summary of sort of areas to target and things to think about. And if you, you know, it's not saying that you have to do all 14, but some of them are really great cues. And there's a link that I'll pop in the resources where the website Apartment Therapy actually did an article on how do you apply these 14 patterns to an apartment. So these are things that you can use in your home as well. And they've got this great little graphic that takes you through these 14 patterns and how you can potentially use them in any building to uh, in a really kind of accessible and easy to put into action way. So make sure you check out that resource. Now, the big thing here with biophilic design is that it's not just about bringing the outdoors in, you know, bringing in the plants, bringing in the garden or having all of the glass on all of the walls so that you, you know, your kind of your relationship with nature is really close. There's, you know, there's other ways that you can do it. And and Terry, in your question, you actually alluded to this, that, you know, that, can it be done through shapes and patterns and things like that? So there are ways that you can drive a and design a connection to nature. So I'm just going to go through a few ideas and uh, suggestions about how this might be possible for you. So the biggest one is going to be natural light. So I've spoken a lot before about how essential natural light is, how it's scientifically proven to lower anxiety, to improve our well-being, to support our mental health. And when you can get any building capturing and harnessing natural light, managing the heat load and letting us see the daily rhythms of the day that does wonders for uh, improving that connection with nature. You think about it when you go into a conference centre, you know, casinos, for example, are designed that you can't see outside. There's no clocks. You lose this sense of time. Conference centres, I don't know about you, but every time I go to a conference centre, I'm always beelining for the, you know, the space next to the window when I get out on a break, just so I can orient myself in the day and get that sort of sense of calm and relaxation from sort of knowing where I am and where in the day it is. So your circadian rhythms are something that is really important for your health and well-being you know that warmth and natural cooling as well is really essential seeing that dynamic movement of the light seeing how light might move across the floor where, where shadows are created that dynamism of that all of that's a really great way to establish that connection and really enhance that connection with nature and think about where you might be able to provide a light, a natural light source or a view to the sky. So skylights can be a really great way to do this. High-level windows, surprising windows that might be positioned higher that give you that diagonal view. But being able to see clouds go over, seeing the weather change, uh, when you may not be able to necessarily see that at a horizontal view, getting that vertical uh, view to the sky can be a really beautiful thing. So... And if if there are spaces within your home or for you, Terry, you know, this being a family and event centre where you are going to be locked away from what's going on in the natural light patterns outside, what can you do to establish a quick connection with that 
by the way you let people out into other spaces on their breaks, uh, you know, or at the beginning and the end. So really sort of thinking about how natural light's going to play a big part in the design of the project. Now, the other way to, th- the other thing to think about is this isn't just about sight. You know, we've got more senses than that. Uh, there's, you know, of course we get taught at school that we've got six senses, but research shows we've actually got significantly more senses than that. So thinking about how you can appeal to those other senses, the same way that you do when you're in nature, you know, when you're actually standing in nature, picture you standing in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a paddock, uh, you know, middle of a big grassy field, middle of, a, you know, big stand of trees, uh, standing at the beach, uh, standing on the edge of a beautiful creek, you can hear things, you can smell things, you can see things, sometimes you can even taste things, and you can you, you can feel things, there's a texture to things. So, you know, evoking these other senses can be really powerful. I remember when I was in the Amazon spheres, I could always hear water running, and it's something really that 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 immediately connects you with a sense of nature and a sense of discovery. It might be bird noises. If you've been to Angel Place uh, in Sydney at the back, you know, near Martin Place, there's, there's a little laneway where you duck in behind where the Ivy Hotel is and there's all these bird cages. It's a piece of artwork that are all suspended, you know, sort of about two stories in the air in between uh, the lane sort of across the top of the roadway in this laneway and there's bird noises playing. But you stand in this incredibly urban environment, you close your eyes and you're immediately somewhere else. You've got this connection to something very different to the immediate environment around you. The rustling of leaves is a really powerful thing and you can create that with indoor plants, with, uh, with you know, what you might do in terms of the natural ventilation and moving things across plants and and leaves so that you can get that rustling noise. You think about in nature, your air temperature isn't static. It's not 24 degrees all year round. So having that change in air temperature can also be really helpful. And then of course, smell. Smell's a really powerful sense. It evokes um, memory in in a way that a lot of our other senses don't. And so that can be a really um, great way to drive that connection with nature as well. Now, in terms of thinking about shapes and patterns, uh, there's different forms and different geometry. And this is something that you can go to town on in terms of really exploring and thinking about in lots of different ways. Now, if you know about the Fibonacci series, so the Fibonacci series, it's a, um, and this is actually from Terrapin's work. They talk about the Fibonacci series. It's a numeric sequence and it occurs in many living things, plants especially. So it's a sequence of numbers that, um, when you add them up, they add up to the next number. So 0, 1, 1, 1, 2, 1, 2, 2, 3, 3, 5. This is really terrible to do on a podcast, but <laughs> it's basically, it's a num- it's a sequence where the two previous numbers add up to the next number. And so you start at 0, 1, and then you basically generate the sequence from that. Now, this is... Um, something known as uh, philotaxy, which is the spacing of plant leaves, branches and flower petals so that new growth doesn't block the sun or the rain from older growth, that will often follow this Fibonacci series. Uh, And it's something that you see in a lot of natural kind of fern forms, in spiral shells, in uh, natural forms that you can then bring into uh, the architecture and the design of a a space. Um, Now, related to this Fibonacci series is the golden mean or the golden section. This may be something that you're familiar with. It's a ratio of 1 to 1.618. 
And it actually comes up a lot. Like I remember learning about the Golden Mane in architecture school um, because it's in living forms and it's seen that when you bring that Golden Mane into architectural forms, you're bringing nature or um, back when it was used in very classical religious buildings, it was seen as bringing God into the buildings through what was considered a really perfect ratio. So it's it's this, the golden mean is the thing that you see in terms of how the spiral unfolds, um, how the seeds are arranged in a sunflower and the spiral of seashells. And so these mathematical and geometrical forms, which have been studied for centuries, you know, this is not news. This is not new news. This is something that has gone back from, you know, Plato and like, it's just, it's very, very, uh, it's been studied for centuries. And so it's in sacred buildings like the Parthenon and the Taj Mahal and Notre Dame and right through to Calatrava's work, Frank Gehry's used it. So it's really um, something that is seen to imbue a building with something of nature, you know, with the most perfect, you know, we look at nature and we can think that it's chaotic, but when you look at nature, you can see symmetry, you can see order. And these mathematicians have studied and nutted out what these geometries and ratios are to then be able to bring this connection to nature and this perfect order and form into the way that we design our own buildings. And so, you know, I definitely think that if this is something you're passionate about, biophilic design can really explore these forms and patterns and uh, geometries in a way that's really powerful. And it's like, you know, we don't, it's not like when we walk into nature, we read these and, you know, consciously know that that's what we're reacting to this is a it speaks to us on a subconscious level and it's the same way that when you walk into a building that uses these types of things there's a calm and an order and a familiarity about it that's actually on a a subconscious level so that's sort of the level that biophilic design really speaks to people at and uh, really helps then support that connection to nature now of course materials are going to also be really important Um, you know this great kind of organic forms that can be created out of some really amazing materials if you know abuku uh abuku they do they did the green school in bali they do a lot of really the green school village that's around bali do incredible bamboo architectural design using the local bamboo uh techniques of that the local people have built up over a very long period of time you can go and do bamboo workshops um there and it's quite amazing to see a material like that which can be incredibly strong but uh be created in really organic intricate forms and that's you know that's something that's really exciting maybe it's something that's not necessarily part of the building but it's done out in the garden or something like that so um, of course timbers are really great natural material generally that can evoke a connection with nature stones gravels the challenge is is that a lot of these natural materials that we know at a core level really resonate with us and really help us feel connected to nature feel grounded feel more calm Uh, you know, suppliers have cottoned onto this, you know, for years and years and years. And as our budgets can't afford the natural materials or the natural materials become more and more scarce, then they're creating synthetic materials to imitate these natural materials. And it just doesn't, if you're trying to create a connection with nature, using the synthetic imitation is not going to work. Okay. So instead, look at how you can use it in smaller components, how you can use it in places where you'll touch and feel it and have an immediate relationship to it. And, uh, and rather than trying to use it on mass in a synthetic form, because you just won't achieve the same thing that you want to. Um, 
uh, color is also a really big thing. So looking at natural tones, understand a bit about color psychology. So I was on the podcast just before a couple of weeks before Christmas in season 11, Interior Design Basics. I spoke to Karen Haller, uh, who wrote the little book of color. And she's one of the world leading experts on color psychology. And she talks a lot about different colors and what they might evoke in terms of our connection. And it doesn't, doesn't mean you have to use all greens. There are different ways to use color that resonates with you that still gives that connection connection to um, to nature and it might be that you use autumnal colors or it might you know fall colors or it might be that you're using spring colors or you know and looking at how these spaces can and colors can work to really drive that connection with nature now if you look at the Amazon spheres as an example and I'll pop a link to the blog that I did on that because um, I've got lots of photographs and it's just an amazing building set of buildings to check out. So they use this dome structure and it was a specific geometry arrangement that they used in the domes. It almost looks like a bubble, you know, like the surface tension of water. It, um, it's just it's just incredible to see that on such a grand scale with glass and steel. Really amazing. But we have, yeah, it's something that we see and interact with every Every day, if you just imagine detergent on the top of a water and what that looks like, it's always a perfect sphere. And so it's it's bringing up those kinds of natures of perfection and order in the way that the building form has been created. Now, there were plants everywhere inside the Amazon spheres. You could hear water running. The temperature was being maintained, but it wasn't, it wasn't like it was only one temperature. And occasionally there'd be a water spray and then that would, you know, that would be on a specific wall of landscaping. And, but then you'd get sort of this you know, flow-on effect of what that felt like moving through the space. Um, there was this great little structure called the bird's nest and it was uh, timber and it was like a little meeting area. It was sitting out within this great big volume. So you sort of walked across a bridge to get to it. It was very cool in terms of it feeling like a really special place. Immediately, like it was called the bird's nest, it felt like a bird's nest and immediately you get this connection to nature and to natural things by sort of seeing it from being you know elsewhere in the building but then also getting to use it as well there was um and that that sense of risk and peril um there's a sense of risk and peril in Terrapin's 14 patterns that I spoke about. And so walking across this bridge out into this little bird's nest, which was out in this great big volume, that did feel, you, you felt that kind of height and you felt that sort of sense of, once you were inside it, you felt intimate and kind of sheltered and protected, but you did feel, it was it was quite interesting walking across to it. So, you know, that that idea of risk and peril can be something that you can bring in, in in very safe ways, but it's enough to feel like you're climbing a tree or you're walking across a log on a creek or, you know, those kinds of things that give us that connection to nature. Now, lots of winding paths and sense of discovery and mystery in the Amazon spheres as well, um, not always being able to see exactly where you were going. So that can be something fun that you can do in certain areas. You don't want to do it all the time because it can be really disorienting, but it can be a really lovely way to sort of change up the feeling of any kind of place and lots of organic forms and geometry. And even when they they were doing sort of the shade structures outside, they were like trees. They had long sort of, you know, trunks that were the steel posts that then went out to very thinner structures that then supported this flat platform that was like a tree canopy but it was actually a shade structure so there's lots of really inventive ways that you can evoke an idea of nature an idea of natural forms to create that strong connection in biophilic design 
Now, the last thing that um, gets recommended by Terrapin and gets talked about a lot in biophilic design is understanding the demography of who your user is. So, Terry, you mentioned, you know, a family and events centre. So really thinking about how kids might interact with and learn from nature because that's going to be different to how an adult will. And, you know, an adult that's attending an event or a workshop or a conference is going to be, that's they're going to be having a different experience and need a different connection to nature than a child will. So what can your centre also say about your local environment? So, you know, you're from Oklahoma, you know, wherever you are, you really want to express the locality and the nature of the locality and the the climate and the conditions of the locality. And that's going to mean different things for how you might express biophilic design in your project. As I said, this isn't just for public buildings, you know, homes... We're seeing a big increase in indoor plants, a big increase in people bringing that kind of nature in, natural colours, natural textures. And as I said, unfortunately, there's then a flow on effect of lots of cheaper, lower cost imitation materials that, you know, they actually don't connect us with nature. They do the reverse. They're really high in volatile organic compounds most of the time and uh, just not great. So really thinking about what you can do where you are for your budget and what's available to, you know, in small ways, create things that are going to give you a connection to nature so that it ultimately improves the way that the the space feels to be in, how you feel in it and how it improves your health and your wellbeing overall. So I hope that's been helpful. Again, lots of resources available to you. So check out the show notes, uh, all the resources on the blog, and you'll be able to see all those links and be able to dive into more research on biophilic design. It's a really exciting area. And if it's something that you're interested in, there's uh, lots to be found about it. Now, our next question is from Felicity. Hi. I'm Felicity from Victoria, doing a renovation. Just wondering whether or not cathedral or highlight windows up high facing north to south should open or just be fixed. Other window in the area is double hung window across in the living room. Thank you. Well, this is a great question thinking about windows and their location and where they face and whether or not they open. And this can be a great way to design for your climate because, of course, windows enable you to let in natural light. They also uh, enable you to let in warmth during winter if you're capturing the heat of the sun and that can help you naturally warm a home and you can also shade those windows to allow light in but let uh, but make sure you're keeping the glare and the heat of the sun out during the hotter parts of the year so that you can keep the home cool and you can also open windows to be able to provide natural ventilation and that can cool and warm the home at different times of the year as well so their usefulness and how they should be designed will be reliant on your location and the climate of your location and the orientation of your specific home as well now There's a website in Australia called yourhome.gov, which is a fantastic resource. I know that there are other similar websites uh, in other parts of the world. Um, So, you know, checking those out. But it's definitely really worthwhile understanding more about the climate zone of where you live because this can help you understand what the primary goal is going to be in terms of whether heating is a primary goal for you. Keeping, you know, if you live in a climate that's predominantly cool, that warming your home is going to be uh, the primary goal or whether cooling is going to be, or whether there's going to be other goals. And all of these are about understanding how you can use the conditions of your local climate to passively design your home. So this isn't passive house design. This is actually just passive 
passive design. So working with the movement of the sun, working with the natural breezes, working with the local climate and the site-specific solutions that you can create in order to minimise the amount of artificial heating and cooling that your home needs. Now, it's worthwhile understanding, obviously, that with windows, they're a pretty terrible insulator. So every time you punch a hole in the wall of your home, you're pretty much creating a space where hot and cool air will move in and out based on the time of year. And so single pane glass, is a, it's just not a, therm, it's not a great thermal barrier. Um, and the way that the frame is designed and coloured, that can also determine whether it's a terrible thermal protector uh, and how much heat and cold is going to pass through it too. You know, most, if you think about aluminium frame windows, you know, aluminium's a really good conductor. So that can work to your disadvantage if you're trying to keep the heat out of your home because the aluminium window frame will not do that for you. So um, you can, of course, change the windows to being double glazed or triple glazed. You can look at what goes into the cavity between the glazing, between the two sheets of glass within a double glazed or a triple glazed window. And then you can also look at thermally broken frames to reduce the transmission of heat and cold through the window and to improve its ability to insulate your home overall. And there's a specific episode in uh, season eight of the podcast where I speak to Tracy, who's the head of the Australian Window Association, and she talks a lot about how to use that information that they provide to look at how your windows uh, are designed and selected. And in that uh, podcast, which I'll pop a link to in the resources. I also have links for other locations around the world that have similar um, governing bodies that look at the window manufacturers in terms of their thermal performance. Okay, so now the question here was asking about highlight or cathedral windows facing north to south. So I'm not sure if that means that there's high level windows on both sides of perhaps like a pop-up area and one side faces north and the other side faces south or perhaps you're describing it in another way. Um, So I'm just going to talk generally about this and hopefully that will be helpful and it'll be helpful for others dealing with this kinds of question as well. So a window based on the way that the window faces in terms of the orientation that it faces is going to depend well that's going to determine how you need to shade it or shelter it to manage the amount of heat that comes through it so if you live in the southern hemisphere the sun moves through the north uh, rises in the east sets in the west moves through the north if you live in the northern hemisphere then sun still rises in the east sets in the west but it's moving through the south so uh, I'm going to talk to the southern hemisphere so if you're in the northern hemisphere whenever you hear north just switch it for south and vice versa okay so a window facing north uh, will need to be shaded from high level summer sun so the sun's going to be more overhead and when it's packing that punch packing that heat and it's traveling across the top of a north facing window for a long time during the day you're going to want to shade that window with a horizontal awning of some sort to or an eave to prevent that direct sun coming into the house you want the ambient light but you don't want the heat now a window facing south will let ambient light in but there's there's only a couple of times in the year where you might get some direct light uh, of a south facing window Um, but most of the time you're just going to get ambient light and they're going to be a source of heat loss as a result so depending where 
you know, Felicity mentioned that she's in Victoria. So depending on where you are in Victoria, and you can hop on the Your Home uh, .gov website and see the climate zones. And the climate zones are actually linked to the Australian Building Code. So they're not just an arbitrary thing that your homes come up with. Um, they're actually linked to how the Building Code assesses the environmental requirements for your area to meet your building approvals. So uh, in Victoria, you'll see on the map that there's climate zone four, there's climate zone six and climate zone seven from memory. And so those are mean different things. Four means that it's a hot summer, a cool winter. Uh, then there's uh, mild temperate is six, I believe, and, and, uh, and then cool temperate, I believe, is the climate zone seven. So when you look through those climate zones, then there's different criteria that uh, will help you understand what to seek to achieve in order to passively design your home. So, and the Your Home uh, website's a great one for this for Australian homeowners because it will give you really um, great detailed information to be aiming for with specific, to be able to respond to your climate zone. So um, some of the criteria that they look at are the design considerations, the windows and shading, the insulation, the heating and cooling, and also suggested construction systems to look at the thermal performance of the home. Now, if you're thinking about high-level windows in, in any house, um, high-level windows, clerestory glazing, uh, Felicity referred to it as cathedral, uh, you know, they can be a great source of natural light. If you're having difficulty getting light in the ends or the sides of your home through, you know, standard glass windows and doors, you know, they can be a great way to light the guts of your house. So, you know, to have a pop-up bit of roof or to have something that's sort of more inbound can actually enable you to bring light in through the core of your home where it may be darker because it's further away from the edges. It's also um, a great opportunity to give a view of the sky, perhaps over the top of a neighbour's house um, to enhance that sense of spaciousness, to give that sort of diagonal view out of the home, which can then really uh, expand the volume and make the home feel yeah so much larger So and really dynamic. It can be lovely to sort of create that sense of guiding the eye up and out and really creating that lovely connection with the outside and with, you know, the sky so that you can see the weather and I see that work really well in homes that might be have neighbours that are close to them or might feel a bit hemmed in or they just want uh, a greater sense of, I suppose, volume and expansion over a particular area of the home that they really want to accentuate. So it might be the rate uh, style ceilings in the main living space to really give that, I suppose, sense of uh, wow and, uh, for want of a bit of a word, drama as you move into kind of one of the most used areas in the home. Uh, sometimes it might be about opening the view up to outside uh, just generally, if you've got like a distant view that you love or opening it up into treetops, there can be lots of great reasons to include that high level window. Uh, and so light and view are two really predominant ones. And it can also enable you to play with the orientation of which direction your windows are facing so that you get the light that you need in your home. So for example, if your home faces east or west to the rear, then sometimes getting a high level window uh, within the home that you can then have side on in the roof space facing north by the way that you 
you know, pop up the roof and you get the window in the middle of the home somewhere. Or, you know, it might be that you've got some clerestory glazing and you've got a split roof over, you know, a section of the home and you can then have north facing glass. You can utilize that really effectively to manage the light and the thermal comfort of your home, even though it might be east or west facing to rear. So, you know, those high level windows can sometimes be a bit more flexible and give you opportunities to really get the design working and to get the home feeling great. Now, given that heat rises, uh, high level windows can also be a great way of getting heat out of the house. Um, You know, there's this thing called convective air movement, uh, hot air rises, cool air settles and it falls. So there's this, you know, idea of stack ventilation. So you can actually get that working so that in summer you can have those windows opening. You can be pulling the hot air out of the home and really cooling your home quickly. And then in, in winter, you can shut those windows down to let the light in, but to keep that warm air in the home and to manage the temperature change overall. So you know, there's lots of great advantages for having those high level windows. And these types of conversation also applies to, you know, skylights like VLUX skylights, sky window skylights. So, you know, you can have operable skylights that will also work with that stack ventilation to draw that hot air out as it's moving through the home and rising. So that can sometimes determine whether or not it's worthwhile to have them being operable. uh, Because if you're, uh, if you're concerned about, you know, warmer summers. And in Victoria, you still get hot, dry summers. So it can be worthwhile to have them operable so that you can pull that air through and uh, be getting that, you know, that uh, natural ventilation happening. And you'd be quite surprised how that stack ventilation works really well. And again, I'll pop a link in the resources. The Your Home website's got a really great diagram of this, a lot of information on it about how ventilation and natural circulation can work really effectively to naturally cool and warm your home. And so that you can uh, see how this convective air movement uh, can be a really great design methodology to keep the air moving in your home. So my, if you can budget for it, my preference is to always make them operable because it just gives you that flexibility on those hot days to be able to get rid of the hot air very, very quickly. And, you know, sometimes a very simple way to do this, uh, if you're not sort of looking at cathedral ceilings or something like that, is to put an operable skylight or an operable window at a high level in your stair void. And you get that natural uh, stack ventilation effect happening by being able to open that window, you'll draw the hot air through the home and up to that high level and give it somewhere to escape. And that can be a really great way of cooling the home down very quickly at night when the hot air has been potentially you know if you've come home at the end of the day and the whole house has been shut up and it's really warm and you know kind of muggy inside the house opening up those high level windows can immediately you know and then sliding open some lower floor doors and things like that you can immediately get some air currents moving convectively through the house to pull that hot air out of the house very quickly and you'd be surprised at how dramatically you can lower the temperature in a very short space of time without needing to use air conditioning at all. Now, the things to be aware of high-level windows just generally in the design of them is that um, they can be difficult to clean. So think about how you're going to clean them both internally and externally. Sometimes the design of them enables you to clean the outside from the inside. So it might be a louvered window or it might be a window that pivots in the middle rather than from the top. So just thinking about how you're going to get access to them to keep them clean um, can be really worthwhile and just save you some headaches in the long run. Uh, and of course, maintaining them. So maintaining the operability of them, if they're timber and painted, how are you going to keep you know them 
uh, repainted, uh, working out how they're going to be able to be serviced and how they're going to be able to be accessed as well. If they're operable, of course, thinking about how you're going to open them. So, you know, if they're manually operated, is it a rod? Is it, um, you know, is it something then you're going to have a rod sort of sitting around the house that you need to store somewhere? Where will you store that rod? How, if the if the uh, if rain comes whilst you're out and that window's open, uh, is that going to you know is rain just going to pour into your house or can the window be designed in the way that it opens that it still sheds water to the outside even though it's open? So it might be an awning window, um, or sometimes louvers can manage to do that. So thinking about the operability, if you do want to motorize it, then of course that can be a fantastic thing to do sometimes it can be possible if you can't budget for the motorization now to have a manually operated one but run the power up into the ceiling you know if you're building or renovating and this window is going in or a set of windows um, you can run the power up in there terminate it in the ceiling and mark it on a floor plan knowing that you can then have somebody come back and retrofit the motorization to the windows more simply because there's power it's running to a blank switch on the wall and it's a fairly easy retrofit rather than uh, having to do a lot of reworking to get that motorization in later some windows can't be switched off like switched from manual to motorized like that so but if that is a consideration just uh, obviously having conversation about that um, early on can be useful and the other thing is obviously do they need to be screened or securitized so you know they may be in a location where it's impossible to get for anybody to get to and climb in Um, you may want to have security on them and you may want to have fly screens on them for insects Uh, sometimes I've seen high level windows because they're up high and they're um, if they're not screened and there's light fittings on the inside they do attract a lot of insects in the evenings um, who are coming in seeing the light source so quite different to obviously a lower floor window or something like that where the light source may not be as immediate to the opening and as attractive to the the window opening so there's those types of things to take into consideration so hopefully that's been helpful I'll pop some of those links in the resources so that you can check out designing for your climate understanding more about natural ventilation and also just about selecting windows as well all right Well, I do hope that you found that helpful and perhaps it has some relevance to your project or, you know, these are questions that you've been grappling with as well. Now, for links and resources that I mentioned in the podcast, head to the show notes or head to this episode on the Undercover Architect website where you'll be able to access those links and resources. Now, be sure to check out my free online workshop, Five Ways to Get It Right in Your Home Design. There's some incredibly useful information for the design of your new home or renovation. Honestly, it's an hour of your life that could save you thousands Uh, in avoided mistakes, months of time in wasted effort and energy with consultants and ultimately help you immensely on the journey to the home that you're dreaming of. So you can watch it at your convenience by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash five ways. Now tune in next time as I answer more questions from the UA community. We've got some fantastic topics being discussed for all kinds of projects, locations, budgets and dilemmas. As always, a huge thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.